You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. In the name of Allah, most gracious, ever merciful. Man, it's been such a long time. Welcome, good morning, assalamu alaikum. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all from Thursday morning breakfast show with myself, Kayum, and joining me is your regular brother, my regular brother, Brother Shahil Manir. Good morning, assalamu alaikum, peace be on you, Shahil. Morning, Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you as well. I'm very happy that you didn't say drive time show. <laughs> <laughs> I'm yeah, very it's happy. A breakfast show. It's a breakfast yeah, show, I know that once you were in a drive time show and you accidentally said our name on a drive time. That's show. right. No, no, because you know when you uh, when you kind of uh, split your time between the different shows, yeah. the the mindset um, <laughs> sometimes the mind doesn't uh, catch up with the <laughs> with the. Uh, what, what you what you're really trying to say, but no, it is breakfast show as always. Uh, good to be here, mm. um, in this dark, dark night, dark Sunday, um, Thursday. Uh, Thursday, you know, you ten days away from 2024. Ten days, ten eleven days, yeah, ten days. Yes, I mean, uh, ten days. Someone was telling me it's less than three months until Ramzan. So we it is. I think March is mid mid March. It is mid March. Yes. It is mid March. Wow, how time flies when you're not having fun. <laughs> <laughs> but one shouldn't complain. Um, as always, we are going to be discussing two fascinating topics, um, which uh, um, have an impact on on the world, um, and you know, not just internationally, but nationally regionally, locally, um, people who are interested in topics which have an effect on their daily lives. Uh, from 7.30 onwards, we're going to be talking about, we're going to be discussing with some professionals, the connection between COP28, which a lot of people don't even know is happening. I remember when COP27 was happening and it was, mm. was all over the news and um, you know it, 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 was, it was everyday headline news, but... There is a COP28 that is happening, and uh, the discussion is what is the connection between COP28 and resolving uh, the the conflict in Palestine. And from uh, 8 um, onwards, we're going to be talking about the National Re-Gifting Day. I didn't know there was a re-gifting day. So um, it's it's, an interesting, it's uh, interesting, interesting topic. When yeah. you do like uh, shows for the breakfast show or for drive, uh, Voice of Islam shows, it, you learn a lot of new things. For me, it's also very interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yep. Uh, it's re-gifting. It's not gifting. The key word is, is re-gifting day. Um, if you want to contribute to any of these topics, we would love to hear from you. Um, it is an interactive show. So your opinion matters. So give us a call 0208-687-7878 or you can join us. Uh, on our social media platforms at Voice of Islam UK. But it is uh, Britain. We have to stick to tradition. What's sure. the weather saying? <laughs> well, the weather is... Um... You, 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 dri- you drive uh, from the other part of the, the <laughs> other part of town. So what, what kind of weather did you experience? Well, uh, I didn't see anything. It was, it was dark at all. Well, funny thing you're asking about the weather. You know, yesterday, I just want to say one thing. Yesterday, my brother-in-law from Canada came, and uh, he asked me about the weather, and I said, listen, yesterday, it was, like, dry. The day before that, it was uh, rainy. Mm. And uh, then he said, yeah, okay, then it should be, this day, it should be sunny then. Because uh, apparently, it is 
the weather of Britain is famous for not being loyal to its citizens. Uh-huh. It changes every day. Yes, British weather is very unpredictable. You will have snow, rain, sunshine on the same day. Or probably at the same time in different geographical locations within the United Kingdom. Um, hence why the British weather is such a interesting and a favourite topic to speak about or not to speak about in the country. But the weather is that it's, it's uh, going to be very windy in the north with bright spells and frequent showers. Some heavy, um, some heavy rain and these will increasingly uh, get worse in the northern Scotland area. Uh, tonight, it's likely to be cloudy and damp further to the southwest area uh, and turning increasingly cloudy from the west overnight with further showers and rain. Uh, this is according to the BBC weather forecast. But moving on to what's happening uh, and what's being reported in and around uh, the newspapers. You know, I find it strange. We, we the, the newspapers nowadays are uh, more filled with Who's having an affair with who? Who's ha- who's uh, whose nickname is being called what? Um, which star is being done for domestic violence? Which person or which star or which person is taking over from who on this particular show? Which demonstrates the the quality of uh, of news reporting in this country? This the world is in turmoil. The thing is that um. L- a lot of people have now stopped watching the mainstream media as well, or following the mainstream media as well. Do you blame them? No. I mean, let's look. At, let's look at the headlines. I opened it. The first one was, "Oh, so and so person." I'm not even going to take their name. So and so person is going to be replaced with so and so person on a particular radio show or a TV show. Um, you know, it's you know, what's the nickname of a person in the royal family? That's head. <laughs> that's main. Headline news. Uh, the only uh, one interesting was the Times, where they're talking about cheaper mortgages set to ease living costs because inflation has gone down. It's gone below 4%. You know, from nearly hitting 11 12%, it's, it's hit 4%. But the question is, will it stay? And it's the reason it's good, because it will mean more money in people's pocket. Um, things uh, which have been expensive will hopefully uh, come down uh, mortgage mortgages people who have been in fixed rate mortgages and coming on to the variable market will not be hit with that much of an increase as they had been anticipating because mortgage uh, people who were in fixed rate mortgages were paying like one one and a half percent and now suddenly they're having to jump to five percent six percent mortgages so if uh, if this trend continues, uh, the question that really comes to mind is: Will banks respond to this uh, drop in in this unexpected sudden drop in inflation uh, to below four percent? Will banks take a risk, um, or will they sit back and see where inflation goes over the next couple of months, and then decide accordingly whether they will reduce their uh, mortgage rates in line? Uh, to come in line with what the inflation is saying. Um, another interesting piece of news is in The Guardian. We talk about how there is outrage over police access to 50 million driving licenses to run face checks. This is all about facial recognition. This is where we are going. The future is IT. The future mm. is AI. 
and facial recognition, which has not been proven to be 100%, not by a mile yet. Uh, British government is adamant that they want uh, facial recognition to be recognised and they're going to be actively looking to use it. But there is outrage as to why this permission is being granted. Uh, an interesting one in Delhi Telegraph, Oli Alexander. Do you know who Oli Alexander is, brother? No. Oli Alexander is the Eurovision Song Contest entrant for Great, Great Britain. Britain. Okay. They are calling for him to be dropped. Okay. Do you know why? Has something to do with the Israel and yes, Hamas? Yes, because he signed a letter in support of the ceasefire in Palestine. Oh my God. And he said that uh, he signed a letter which said that Israel was an apartheid state <coughs> and that it was committing genocide. Um, and because Israel is also, funnily enough, an mm. entrance into the Eurovision Song Contest, which for the life of me, I don't understand considering they're not in Europe. No, it's no, Eurovision. Eurovision, exactly. So there should be Asia vision. Yeah, <laughs> it's all Middle Eastern. Middle Eastern. Middle Eastern vision, <laughs> but but to to you know the, the idea of freedom of speech, freedom it's of expression. Gone. It is gone. It's gone until it suits the narrative of the people exactly. who who are uh, you know the journalists, the mainstream media, the people who are uh, who are controlling the narrative are current politicians. So. I looked up the definition of genocide and I said, okay, people always have a problem with this word. So according to the dictionary, genocide is um, mass killing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, mass killing of people of, uh, of a nationality and ethnical based on ethnicity, racial or religion in whole or in part. Of, of a group. Now, the murder of 20,000 people, of which 70% are women and children. So that's 14,000 women and children. And this is something, you know, this is something the world is not talking about. Yeah. The world is just having, not looking at it. I mean, to be honest, when the war started in Ukraine, everyone was for Ukraine. Yep. And now it comes to that part of this of the planet where we have seen it for 75 years that people have suffered a lot and yet and when it when it, when we see the huge damage people are not talking about it they just ignore it i mean they just don't want to talk about it and uh, it is so sad we see what level humanity has fallen that when someone calls for ceasefire which is good because we don't want war they just put him in a negative way and i can't understand that i mean how is it possible that being adult, having children, yes, and seeing when, you know, it is heartbreaking when my child is suffering, but it's, it is more heartbreaking to see these videos of these children who are dying, who are losing their parents, and then when someone calls for ceasefire, then someone stands up and say that I'm a, I've got a heart, I've got a heart for these people as well. I don't want to see them suffering. I don't want to be dying. And suddenly when he calls for a ceasefire, he's basically a bad person. But this is the thing, though, isn't it? The people who control the narrative in our country um, are mouthpieces for Israel. Mm. Even our political system, irrespective of which side of the floor you're on, are too scared. To and speak. I will say it's absolute cowardice behavior from our political leaders that they are so scared of demonstrating basic justice and humanity 
by asking for a ceasefire. They abstained in the last uh, United uh, mm. Nations Security Council vote where America shamefully, absolutely shamefully vetoed I know. the exercising of justice and humanity. That That's the... And this is where, the, the you know, they talk about the 7th of October. They talk about Hamas. All they are worried about, all they're concerned about is condemning Hamas, condemning Hamas. Well... And I'll keep on saying it. Where was Hamas in 1947? Mm. Where was Hamas in 57? Where was Hamas in 1967, in 1977? Hamas came about in 1987. So who was committing all the, the atrocities before then? Who was doing everything? Who was killing all the Palestinians before then? And look at the West Bank. As well. There's no Hamas and people are still people dying. Are, people are dying. People are being murdered. People are being... The people's lands is being occupied. I mean, there's... This, uh, there are living, like, illegal... People are living illegally. Illegally. Of course. It's illegal occupation. That's not me saying it. That's not you saying it. That's what the law says. They are illegal. So I looked up... So I looked up the definition of genocide, as I said. Exactly what's happening in Palestine. <laughs> from a definition mm. point of view. So then I looked up the word apartheid. Now, the the most in recent years and recent decades, the most qualified people to talk about this are the South Africans. Exactly. And leaders of South Africa, people who are members of the ANC, the African National Congress, have said the apartheid that is being suffered by the Palestinians is 10 times worse than what they suffered. Yeah. So these are the people who experienced it. Hmm. But then it's not, again, me saying it or you saying it or South Africa saying it. Amnesty International, over a period of years of investigation, of research, of uh, going to areas in Israel, have come back time ago and said Israel is an apartheid state. And you know, this shows everything. Like You, know, you just talk about... Mm, uh, yeah, genocide you talk about apartheid that is happening and it's not you saying it it's basically the Amnesty International UN is human saying ri- human rights, human rights, rights is saying in, in Israel in United Nations they have said and th- the th- former chief of Mossad hmm. the former yeah. chief of Mossad said the current Israeli regime is committing apartheid and this is you know, this is what saying that look at the level of humanity or look at the level of our politicians cowardly they don't say anything this is such a weak government we see that they're not able to stand up and to say the truth because they're scared and um, and all of you know they and and clarify the word scared not scared of a threat or anything they're scared of losing their authority their power their job their job is giving being given precedence over the death of babies. This is so sad. I mean, how can you see that? You see mothers, you know, I was reading that a mother has to decide either she leaves her newborn baby in hospital and goes with the remaining children or she tells her remaining children, go and I stay with my newborn. And if she leaves the newborn and lives alive with the children, still she will have a heart, like she will suffer from that anyways. She's broken. And uh, this is, you know, this is humanity. Humanity doesn't care about other human beings, That's right. unfortunately. Yeah. And people are celebrating that as well. Yeah. And this is so sad. This is I can't believe that in what twisted world we are actually living. Talk about twisted world. The IDF killed three Israelis. Mm. 
mm-hmm. and they said it was done by accident. How can you kill somebody by accident? You know, you've made a mistake. Say, look, you know what? We did wrong. Yes. Say that. But the mouthpieces of these regimes in our country are trying to justify they're believing the fact, oh, it was done by accident. Why is it? Is it absolute shamelessness? Or is it that they actually think that the people listening to them are too stupid to realize? We're not stupid. We're not stupid. We see it. The world has changed. I mean, as I said, we got social media now. We see all see, That's the key, isn't it? It is. Because previously, atrocities were written about after the event. Mm. So you used to read about it in school, in papers, or somebody's released a book. That's not the case this time. We are witnessing live an apartheid, a genocide, a massacre of innocent people of a certain ethnic group. And the what? wiping out. And they're saying it. We're going to wipe out Gaza. Hmm. And then all the Western mainstream mouthpieces, I don't like calling them journalists. Because what a jur- the job of a journalist is, if you're a journalist and I'm sitting on your left and another person sitting on your right, and, and if I'm saying something to you and another person saying something totally on the other side, your job is, if I say to you, it's, it's light outside. Another person says it's dark outside. Your job is not to believe either of mm. us. Your job is to look out the window and look at yourself. Yes? Yes. That's journalism. You look at the reality <coughs> of outside instead of reporting based on what somebody is saying. Today's, and, and what makes me laugh is, uh, you know, uh, television presenters have suddenly called themselves, radio presenters suddenly call themselves oh, journalists. Yeah. Oh, we are journalists. And and they're giving they're, they're giving their opinions like their facts and I'm like as I said I'm not saying this you're not saying it we're actually quoting independent organizations like Amnesty International Humanitarian Watch across different parts of the world even former members of the Israeli government practicing Orthodox Jews look at uh, the the uh, review of religions mm-hmm. Did a did a fantastic uh, live stream yesterday of uh, these rabbis who were so open about Israel doesn't represent Jews, they do not represent Judaism. How Zionism has got nothing to do mm. with uh, with Judaism. How Zionism is a political ideology and a, a very very evil. If you look at it, you know they talk about how not you know they talk about killing of pregnant women and babies and. <coughs> And not to leave alive anything that breathes, which is being practiced. I mean, you know, you're talking about the review of religion. They have made a video. It's very, it's actually a very beautiful video. It's about history. When um, the second caliph, Umar al-Dalano, when he came to Jerusalem, when Jerusalem was conquered by the Muslim, and he thought that there were no Jews living in that land. They were exiled by the Romans. So he invited them back to live there as well. Because Jerusalem is known as a city where three major religions have lived there peacefully. And if you look in the history of the Jews, you know that they were exiled from different places, even in Europe. The longest per- period of a time when they lived peacefully in the land was Andalusia, Spain, when it was, ru- when it was ruled by Muslims. Mm. This is where they lived peacefully for a long, long time. And then the Christian came again, then they exiled them again. But what I'm trying to say is that Muslims and Jews have lived always together peacefully because they are cousins. Hmm. This is how they know each other. They call each other. You know, if you see a Palestinian 
and a Jew, they will start calling each other cousin because they are cousin actually, far, far away. And they have a relationship, family relationship as well. And that's why they have a deep connection. And uh, Muslims and Jews have always lived in peace. And this is, you know, this is something I want to show my son one day again. That look, I hope I can show him that look, this is Jerusalem, a city known for his culture, for his for, city known that people from different religions have always lived here peacefully together. And uh, this shows, you know, this is basically what religion is. This is what people are missing a lot. And um, I hope this change because Islam and Muslim and Jews, they have a deep relationship. <coughs> and if you look at this beginning of Islam, it's you see that Jews have always played a big role. And you see that Muslims were there to protect the Jews as well. So we have a deep relationship with these Jews. And of course, they will understand the pain we have as well, the suffering we do. So hopefully the only thing you know we can do is just pray for them. And it's it's true what you say, and but it's interesting you mentioned your your child and your children, and and I think that's important. What people like the politicians and the and the mouthpieces and the broadcasters who are taking the side of apartheid, taking the side of ethnic cleansing, taking sides with, um, you know. Uh, the 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 genocide of the Palestinians. People who are taking sides with the oppressor are will be on the wrong side of history because, mm. as I said, and you rightly said as well, history is being recorded on social media. It is. Their children, these people who are supporting these atrocities, and su- by supporting I mean they are, they are justifying the actions. They, that the audacity that people can 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 justify the murder of twenty thousand people, the mind boggles. But then, what I would love to be a witness to is them explaining to their children when their names will be written in history, is being written in history, is being recorded in history, mm. that they took part in 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 atrocities against uh, innocent people, that their parents and their forefathers and their grandfathers took part in or supported apartheid, supported the death of um, and justified the death of 20,000 people. And and the response, I when I talk to some people, is the response is, yeah, but Hamas did this. <laughs> Nobody is sitting here and saying what Hamas did was right. Nobody's saying that. Mm. Killing of women and children across the board is wrong. Across the board. But their answer to everything is, but do you condemn Hamas? And everybody says, everybody condemns what they did. Just like everybody should be condemning what is happening to innocent Palestinian people. But instead of condemning it, they're like justifying it. They're looking to pacify it. And they they are actually creating obstacles in not having a ceasefire. Mm. That, that is, is wrong. It's sad and wrong, yeah, exactly. <coughs> but Palestine is going to be uh, part and parcel of our first topic of the morning. One thing I would say to everyone is, remember, it is happening. Um, people are dying. Um, I was reading a report that recently, that uh, a couple of days ago, released that 
there's 300 people dying every day on average in Palestine, innocent people. And remember, 70% women and children. And one thing, again, Palestinians don't need people like me and Brother Shahil and all those beautiful people who are marching for the rights of the Palestinians. They don't need them to speak for them because Palestinians, I'll never forget, I saw that moment where the Turkish TV read out that text from a young Gazan who said, tell the Arab world not to do our funeral prayers because, because the they are the ones who are dead. He's referred to the Muslim world and to the Arab nations. They said they're the ones who are dead. We are still alive. That perseverance, the patience, that steadfastness, that belief in God Almighty is is beautiful. It's amazing. That and and it puts everyone like me. I I I feel like shameful, thinking they are in this condition, yet their perseverance is is an example. You know the belief that they have in God Almighty, that this is a challenge and a trial that is being brought upon them by God, yet they believe. And I think um, I don't know if you were on the show, but Drive Time Show made a show. Where because people are very much influenced by yes, Arab it was people. last Friday. Yes, when they were talking about that, that because of that, they converting to Islam. They're reading yes, the they're reading the Holy Quran because they can't understand that what is written in this book that these Palestinians keep on quoting. It is exactly it's so, and Quran is so beautiful. I mean, uh, if you look uh, various verses, yes, but God, God says that ya yatunna that oh soul, who um, if you uh, turn to your Lord happily, and He's happy with you as well. Like, I mean, this shows that Islam is not just a religion that uh, asks you to be happy. It also asks you to make your Lord happy. And if you, you know, it's like, like for example, you love someone, and uh, you have a deep love for that person. You will do for that person anything. You will go even in danger or difficult. Like you go, you you will suffer for him as well. And um, God obviously. You know, if God sees that we are doing everything for Him, we and he, he, we see the affection with God as well, and we see that God is so close to us as well, it's giving us peace. You know, this is what we need. He He said that when we believe in Him, we will have comfort and peace, and this is what they have as well. And this is the thing what people are so amazed of. That's why they start uh, teach, uh, reading the Quran, learning about Islam as well, and also converting to Islam now. Just to finish off uh, the the news being covered in the papers, you're a sport person, aren't you? Are you a football person? Yeah. I sometimes hear you and ask him. Yeah, no, there's one thing. <laughs> I just want to wrap it up very quickly. Yeah. Me and my nephew, right? Our, our, he is a he's supporting Paris Saint-Germain and um, I always tell him not to support them. And he always asks me not to support Liverpool, right? And we start arguing. Who's Are you a Liverpool person? Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. What's your take on what Klopp is saying to the fans that if you're not behaving right, give your tickets away? Yeah, well, he's, he's, he's understandable. I mean, you coming there, you uh, as you as a human being, you should act normally. I know there are so much emotion sometimes, but in the end, you need to understand it's just a, it's a game. You he, play football, you, you go home, you shake hands, you know. But you know. I I also want to see it from the players as well that they behave as well. Sometimes you see the emotions in the field as well, showing wrong pictures to children as well, and they will act upon that as well. And this will then these children will grow up and they will do the same as well in the stadium. You so, know that the the, the 
the anthem of of on the Anfield. No, You'll never walk alone. Never walk alone. I take my hat off to the to the Liverpool supporters. The support they gave to the Palestinians last time. They sang, mm. "You'll never walk alone" for the Palestinians with Palestinians. And of course, you can't talk about Palestinian football and not talk about Celtic fans, who who, did the same? who have been warned by UEFA, you can't do this, can't do that, and and the more. Uh, the the more they say you can't do this, the more the fans um, are, are are chanting for uh, for the Palestinians and across the world. In fact, I mean, in Arab and North African countries, it's of of course is there. You expect it in Morocco, in Egypt, the you know. But to see Celtic fans and 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 the Irish, uh, Irish. members of Parliament, um, and uh, and of course what I've seen with the with with the uh, in Liverpool. The people who are uh, supporting openly in in their uh, on on the stands is it is an amazing sight. So one takes off, uh, uh, the, you know, I take off my hat to them for for standing up for justice and humanity. Um, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to go on to our first topic of the morning, which is what is the connection between COP twenty eight and resolving the crisis in Palestine. Um, go grab yourself a cup of coffee. What's your breakfast? What do you like for breakfast? Oh, I like, to be honest, I used to have bagels with uh, salmon with bagels. But now I just have cereals. Cereal? Yes. That's not breakfast. For me, it's fine. Come on. We Devix. Listen, is cereal's not a breakfast. Um, I said cereal, but I'd take Vitavix. That's not, that's just like, you know, with, come on, man. You know, a bit of toast, some some pumpkin seeds toast and some avocado, yeah, three, poached three, eggs, three, three, bit of chili flakes on few top. few days ago, my, my wife, she made sandwiches for me in the morning. What I have just explained to you is not a sandwich. No, but... It's a beautiful breakfast. She made omelette as well one day, so... <laughs> you <go>. Listen, man... <laughs> Uh, me and you will talk off off okay. air. Okay. Let's go take a quick break, sure. and when we come back, we will go into our first topic of the morning, which is what's the solution um, or the connection between COP28 and resolving the crisis in Palestine. Do stay tuned. Join us after this quick break. to the Voice of Islam Radio. Storm clouds forwarding us of a third world war are getting heavier by the day. The effects of such a war would last for decades to come. Generation after generation of children would 
more than likely be born crippled or with genetic defects due to the lasting effect of the radiation. Thus, it is the urgent need of the time for mankind to work towards safeguarding our future. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Welcome back to Thursday Morning Breakfast Show with myself, Kayyum, and Brother Shahil Munir. On to our topic of the morning, which is the connection between COP28 and resolving the crisis in Palestine. Brother Shahil, what is the gist of this story? So, as you know, there's a conflict in the Middle East between those two parties, Israel and Hamas. And it is such a huge conflict that everyone is talking about, even in the COP28, where you were thinking that they will, they will talk about the environment. Mm-hmm. But Turkish and South African leaders have spoken up about it. The question arises, how can safe and climate happen if there is a war going on? Uh, as a result on, the f- on these factors, the issue of f- fossil fuel use in Gaza is likely to be a major topic to- of discussion at COP28. And um, so what happened is people are demonstrating uh, while the COP28 is happening in Dubai. And uh, then several leaders like uh, Turkish and South African leaders, they've spoken about uh, the conflict as well. And uh, and the reason is that because COP28 and the war happening, not only in Gaza, but in different places as well, has a big uh, effect on the climate uh, and, and the, uh, the environment as well. Um, while, now, specific details when mentioned in the article regarding the Turkish and South African leaders, several world leaders utilized the platform to condemn Israel's action during the climate gathering. Now, leaders highlighted the need to, uh, to address the ongoing conflict in Gaza while advocating for environmental issue, underlying the difficulty in pursuing climate justice amid ongoing conflict zones. Now, the Episode is disc- uh, discussion about the balance between addressing pressing conflicts and focusing on long-term environmental strategies during global gatherings such as COP28 will hopefully have an impact as well. But most importantly, as you can see, that when war is happening, it has not only have that impact on lives, because we see people are losing their lives, but it also has an impact on the environment, which is also a big major problem for the world, for the civilian who will start maybe living on that place if it's if you can if it's still livable so therefore these people have spoken about it. and i think it's a good point that you know if you go and if you start bombing a place right and you say okay you can come back there there's nothing left you can't live there there's no houses there's no universities there are no hospitals no schools these things are very important and the holy prophet peace upon him, for example he spoke about that that not to cut a tree yeah not to cut uh, people innocent uh, sorry not to kill innocent people etc so why are we dra- addressing these points i think it's very important as well to highlight what the holy prophet peace be upon him has said you know you were saying that um we were talking about collateral damage before there's no concept in Islam about collateral damage, and there's no concept of killing or destroying the environmental, uh, the surroundings, uh, or yeah, no, there's no mentioning of destroying any places in the country, basically. Mm. 
The only perfect peace partner has said the war should be between two, these two parties, two armies. That's it. You shouldn't go around and you should start, shouldn't start killing innocent people because these these people have nothing to do with rules. The rules. There's rules. There's rules of engagement. Rules of war. Exactly. Um, and you know, children, women, elderly, disabled, or anyone who doesn't want to be part of a conflict should not be part of um, of of, uh, of such action. But <clears throat> enough of us talking about it. Let's go and talk to someone who knows what they're talking about. <laughs> Let's go and talk to an expert. We've got with us Dr. Eves Planchero, who is a lecturer in the Department of Earth Sciences and Engineering and an affiliate of the Graham Institute, leading the Endian Environmental Diagnostics and Analysis Research Group. The goal of the Endian Group is to develop a comprehensive understanding of global bio <coughs> biogeochemical dynamics in a changing environment. He aim, um, they aim to support the green transition while trying to anticipate the pollution issues of new low-carbon world by consolidating the knowledge base and build the data sets and uh, tools that will be needed in the next decades. Good morning. Welcome. Assalamu and peace be on you, Dr. Plangero. Thank you for taking time and coming on to The Breakfast Show. Yeah, good morning to you too, sir. Uh, happy to be here. And uh, hopefully I can add a few few pieces of information to your debate. Most definitely. Pleasure to have you with us, sir. If I may, um, how do wars impact global biogeochemical dynamics and how does your research group approach the assessment and management of these changes to support environmental recovery in the aftermath of the war? Uh, yeah, so that's a very difficult question, actually, to answer. It is. It is. Uh, the, 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 the idea is that um, wars or military um, exercises essentially could have both positive and negative impact on the environment. So because it's a very heavy topic, I'm going to start with the positive parts of that. Mm -hmm. So in terms of positive impact, um, the idea is that some, some conflict can lead to the creation of... Um, I believe, uh, conservation areas that are not necessarily designed as conservation areas, but act as such. For example, we can think of the, the demilitarization zone between uh, South Korea and North Korea, which is a place where nobody actually goes, right? And so that's a, that's a strip of land that has now sort of been reclaimed by nature largely and acts as a very, very effective uh, nature conservation area. Uh, now, of course, most of the impact are negative, right? Mm -hmm. And so in terms of negative impact, we, we can have direct or indirect impact. So in terms of uh, direct impact, of course, we have a devastation of landscapes through bombing or explosions. Um, we have burning of forests and then um, uh, something that's uh, maybe less present today, but was very, very uh, important in the 70s is the use of herbicides. For example, in the Vietnam War, uh, when people when um, Agent Orange was being used to defoliate the, for the forests, right? So that's a release of a very nasty chemical over millions of square kilometers. So very, very bad uh, influence. And then in terms of indirect uh, influence, we have uh, how people are going to use resource, essentially people affected by the conflict. So you have uh, use of resources that is directly to fuel the war machine. Essentially, uh, a lot of that is use of timber, for example, and that's, that's, that's happened through our history. For example, in, in, in the UK, when Henry VIII uh, was there in the 1500s, a lot of trees were cut down to, to create the Royal Navy. Um, the new forest in the UK was planted to support the, the, the Royal Navy. Uh, but then, of course, you also have other impacts, uh, such as hunting for food. Um, and then you have... Uh, 
when a conflict arises, you have a lot of displacement. For example, in Ukraine, you have 20 million people or more that are being displaced, and uh, the same in many other regions. And so that basically moves people, millions of people that are uh, surviving someplace to another place. And so that's going to drain resources in that new area quite substantially uh, in terms of food, water, or shelter uh, needs, right? So it's very, very dramatic. Um, so, so I guess the bottom line is there's no simple answer. Uh, it very much depends on the intensity, the size, the duration, and the location of the conflicts uh, that we are talking about. And uh, you were talking about the Ukraine war as well, and we have many, many crises in the world right now. Um, I just want to know that how long does it take for the environment to recover after a war? So it, again, it, it very much depends on the impact you're interested in. So mm -hmm. if you are if you are thinking about um, uh, physical damage, for example, your a bomb explodes and then it, it, it destroys an area. Generally speaking, that area will be um, sort of reclaimed by nature rather quickly, provided that there is no new new problem arising and the nature around it is actually left relatively pristine. Right. Uh, it, I think it's a it's a bigger bigger problem when you start starting to talk about chemical um, chemical pollution because that can that, that can be much mm. much much more long term. Uh, Hiroshima, Nagasaki. Even mm. today, the effects of the the atomic bomb is 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 being felt. I mean, you know, we're coming on uh, what uh, it's been eighty eighty five years eighty odd years since the Second World War. Is mm. is it not? It, it, should we not be doing our calculations based on the fact that the likelihood of the future bombs or the bombs that are being thrown will be chemical. They will be of, of a nature that will leave an impact for decades, if not centuries. Well, I, I hope that our world will come to its senses regarding use of uh, weapons of mass destruction. I mean, this is a, mm. at, at some level, if you're starting to talk about uh, extensive use of nuclear weapons, Uh, the idea of uh, environmental science becomes almost moot because humanity will, you know, will have a hard time surviving itself. Yes, I, I agree. Um, I was listening recently that people were saying, well, you know, climate change is something that we're doing to ourselves. But before we die of of a climate change uh, catastrophe, we're going to we're going to end up killing ourselves with weaponry. Well, but, but but when you think about the impact of war, you also have a direct impact on climate change. When you're talking about uh, mechanized warfare, uh, right. as yes. is happening today, you, you're, you're talking about uh, large numbers of, of, of heavy vehicles that are being powered by fossil fuel hmm. that should not essentially be emitting carbon in a peacetime situation. So essentially, um, war is the antithesis of sustainable development, right? You cannot really have a sustainable world uh, you know, ridden by warfare, obviously. Um, yeah. So, based on what we are saying, re realistically, solutions that we do tend to find when somebody does do good, when somebody brings in policies, where laymen, people, normal people like ourselves, we change the way we live, which we think has a positive impact on climate, yet the the countries that we where we practice these habits go and create wars are we not shooting ourselves in the foot or are we not going backwards really well i think i think we have to control what we can control um at some level you can't really link every problem in the world to every other problem and i think uh 
what we can control is our use of resource and our um, our carbon emission, for example, right? And I think I would very much encourage everyone to do the best they can to control and minimize their carbon emission. Um, the development of conflict um, often are linked to to other 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 factors, and these are not things we can control uh, to a large degree. I don't think you and you and I can actually have much of an effect on. Uh, political decisions that are made by very, very few people in, in the end of the day. Agreed, agreed. Yeah, so so I think what we can do um, ourselves is to try to spread a positive message, do the best we can to sustain our environment, and the more of us do that, the better the world will become, I think. So we we were, I mentioned the, the research um, at Endian, um, which, uh, did you face any challenges while building these data sets and tools uh, for conflict-ridden areas. I mean, could you tell us a little bit more about the research yeah. that uh, Endian? Yeah, so so uh, we're not really working on conflict areas per se, but we're working in areas that are mostly affected by natural disasters and try to understand um, the conflicts that arise and also the basically the impact the natural disasters will have on these areas. But yeah, so in terms of um, uh, challenges, so environmental science is always data limited. And we never have the data we need fully, right? Mm-hmm. And this is actually only becoming worse if you're talking about about the conflict uh, conflict zone. And many conflicts actually happen in in poor regions. And so uh, you have like then do- double negative in a sense. You have a, a poor country that is already data poor that is made even more data poor by the fact that now it's completely impossible to collect data. Um, so, uh, the, so so data availability is a big issue. Um, and the other, the other um, aspect of trying to get data is that it can be very dangerous, obviously, right? Mm-hmm. Of and even if you go, to, even if you go to a, a region that is not uh, currently in, in conflict, but that that um, I guess witnesses certain illegal activities, uh, you, you enter a world that can that can be rich in organized crime and corruption. And so, actually, doing something in this region can be can be quite, uh, you know, quite testing. Um, yeah. So, so would just an example from from that just comes to mind. So, the the volcano eruption in Iceland would that be um, a good example where you would be able to get good data sets? Yeah. So that's a case where everybody's on board in terms of uh, trying to understand what the impact of the volcano will be. So there's no there's no conflict in a sense that uh, you, you you won't have to. You know, you're not really risking yeah, exactly. um, your life because of political reason. You're just kind of going to the volcano, and it's you and your environment. The, the, an example I can I can give you in terms of um, challenges would be uh, one of the projects we had was trying to look at illegal gold mining in somewhere in Africa, hmm. and so we have been very successful in actually detecting suspected gold mining operations using remote sensing from satellite. But then in order to ground truth um, our prediction, we would need to actually go in the field there. But uh, in order to go to these regions uh, can be really, really dangerous, right? So we didn't actually make that step yet because we're not quite sure how to do it in a safe safe manner. Uh, but you're talking about an illegal operation that brings a lot of money to the to certain people. Hmm. Um, and so, so so that that can be very difficult, yeah. Um, finally, Doctor, we maybe it's a naive question. We we are actively doing what I what I tend to see when I look around me and look around the world. The layman, the normal people, the everyday people of the inhabitants of this world, tend to be um, geared up to make changes to their lifestyles. 
And I, I love the message that you give that it's good. We need to change our habits. Um, revolutions start from one peop- one person and, and, you know, it filters across societies and, and communities. But do you think that the political class has a desire, a will to back up the changes that the public is making in order to achieve success in the climate change battle that we are fighting? Well, I think we in the UK, we are lucky enough to live in a democratic environment. And it's to some degree our responsibility as people to force our government to do whatever we want it to do. Right. And so it, I think it's clear that some of the decisions that have been made by the current government in terms of environmental policy are not really in line with sustainable environment. Exactly. Uh, but at the same time, we have the power through our ability to vote to actually um, vote for people that we believe can can make a change right Mm. and so we cannot simply put the blame on the government if the government doesn't do what we want in theory in a democracy we have the power to change that government and i think we need to take that you know people who would like to see a change need to to make that that voice heard much more loudly most definitely most definitely i agree with you dr eve spancherol thank you so much sir for taking time out and coming on to The Breakfast Show. I wish you a fantastic day ahead. May peace be with you, sir. Thank you very much, and uh, have a good day, everybody, as well. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Interesting point, and I agree with him wholeheartedly, uh, Dr. Yves Blanchard, making that point right at the end. It is up to us who we decide comes into power, and I think people, if people need to realize or it is time people realize the power of their vote but you know i, I this is the time to I exercise do, it. i do agree with dr what he said in the end of course we have the power right we have the power to vote we can never give our voices as well i had an um conversation with someone who said um i'm not going to vote anymore because he said i voted for so much longer time for people who he thought will help us mm-hmm. and yet they have let him down Okay. And he says that he doesn't see anyone who can basically change anything. I do tell, tell him, listen, your voice can do a lot. Yes, you can speak up and you can make the change while giving your voice as well to someone you believe he can do bring the change. But he said no one will bring justice to the world. That's the thing. He said he can't see anyone who can bring basic justice to the world. But 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 what he is portraying is hopelessness. It is hopelessness. Yes. That's a sin itself. You gotta have faith. You gotta have. You gotta. <clears throat> if you know. You, you like football. When a manager of a team makes a decision, what do the fans makes a decision that the fans don't like? Fans just stay on the on the stands and they boo him. Or if he makes a good decision, they clap him. They they think they know better than the manager. Yes. If you want to change the system. You have to be part of the system. You can't be clapping on the side and then expecting. Yeah, you know, you can't say, "Well, I didn't vote." But then, when it comes to um, uh, uh, a decision that gets made by the politicians, and then you're the first one to complain about it, you can't have that. You do have the right to vote. There are. There's not only just two parties. There are conservatives. There's Labour. There's the Liberal Democrats. There is the SNP. There is Sinn Féin. Of course, these are all regional parties. But then they have there's there's the Green Party. We are talking about climate change. There's a Green Party as well. There are independent parties. There are smaller parties who are going to be making a play. And 
you know, if you don't think you might have justice for one thing, mm. there might be another thing where you do get justice. Like me, I, I'm like, I'm not going to be, I'm, I'm, I've been vote open about it. I am, I am not going to be voting for any mainstream party because of the stance that they have taken in Palestine. Because to me, it doesn't make sense. Mm. Anybody who supports atrocity, anybody who supports an apartheid, anybody who supports the killing um, and not speak about it by default is committing those offences. Silence and, and, and support go together. And, and, and I, I cannot bring myself to vote. But there are so many other parties. There are independents, there are smaller parties. A vote is something that you must exercise. Of course, it's it's of and course. plus you know it's it's a habit that uh, as a parent, how do you expect your children to exercise their vote when they see their parents are don't care, their parents are not going to make an effort to vote? Then, then, then it will it, it's something that will just filter through into the next generation who will not care. And the topic that we are talking about today is more relevant to the future generations than it ever has been. The only thing we can hope for is that the person who is elected understand his position as well and that he helps through this position to maintain peace because peace is right now what we need you know okay we talk about climate change we talk about environmental but the most important thing is peace right now it is i agree but as i said not voting will not make a, an iota of difference in fact it will make it that much more difficult to bring peace because if everybody started to have that stance then people who really want to come into power for their own gain Mm. That's what they want. You they know, want the mass people to stop voting. That you, you just said, you own gain. Like you need to put away your own ego. Then that's right, without a doubt. You're listening to the breakfast show with myself, Kiyum, and uh, um, and brother Shahil. Um, we're gonna <clears throat> take a quick break and go to the news. Um, once we come back, we're gonna carry on talking about the connection between mm. COP28 and resolving um, the crisis in uh, Palestine. So grab yourself another cup of coffee. Uh, do stay tuned and join us after the 8 o'clock news. Welcome back to Thursday Morning Breakfast Show with myself, Kayum, and Brother Shahil Munir. We've been talking about uh, COP28 and the connection um, with the resolving the conflict um, in in Palestine and with the conflicts that are happening in and around the world. Let's go and talk to our next guest um, on, on this topic. Uh, we've got with us uh, Professor uh, Stefan Harris, who is the Professor of Climate and Environmental Change at Exeter University, and he works on climate change impacts, natural disasters, natural hazards, and climate change adaptations. His research focuses on Earth system responses to climate change in many of the world's highest mountains, including Patagonia, the tropical Andes, Himalayas, uh, Central Asia, and European Alps. From uh, his research, uh, Professor Stefan has published over 180 scientific papers. Um, he advises the UK government on climate change risks for large infrastructure projects and was head of the UK Climate Change Expert Committee from 2011 to 2018. He is the climate change lead author for the United Nations GE07 program and runs a consultancy called Climate Change Risk Management. Good morning, welcome, assalamualaikum and peace be on you. Uh, Professor Harrison, thank you for taking time out and coming on to the breakfast show this morning. Good morning, and uh, thanks for inviting me. Um, Professor, we, we've been talking about COP28 um, and, uh, and, and the effect 
uh, that uh, it's it's uh, uh, it's having um, on uh, on the world itself with with all the wars that are happening in around the world not just in 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 Israel but there are so many wars that are happening which are very disruptive towards the to the global infrastructure in respect of climate change yeah how do you think these things are interlinked well that's a really uh, interesting and difficult question to answer it um, is. yes c- clearly wars the problem with wars is that they they take away they take away the focus from um, things which might even be bigger than those wars if you get my yep. my my my, intro, my sort of my, my view it's essentially wars um, when wars occur the media and and governments and everybody else are, are fixated on on those things, and for very good reasons. Right? These are, you know, these are terrible things. Um, but of course, what it does do is then it, it takes politicians and and other people's uh, minds away from uh, the, uh, the the focus on on uh, away from things which might actually be over the longer term might be even more important. The like things effect. like climate change. Yeah, and. Uh, one other thing about wars is that the wars also are so so wars take us away from what we should really be thinking about which is long-term sustainable development for all of humanity they take us away from that but they also mean that um uh that that you know climate change that they make the, those sorts of regions and the globe more uh, more broadly um more less resilient to climate change it must be very difficult to worry about things like drought and you know um, large rainstorms and uh, climate adaptation if you're living in um, parts of Ukraine or if you're living in the Middle East uh, especially at a time when war is 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 not allowing resilient infrastructure and pr- and process to be built but but I, I was reading that at events such as cop 28 it is discouraged or to, or people tend to stay away from politics Mm. Uh, or political discussions isn't that a bit naive considering that the majority of the damage being done to the climate is being done by decisions made by politicians yeah you're absolutely right um it's crazy not to have discussions about about politics because politics is the way in which we 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 got ourselves into these into this problem and we're going to get ourselves out of these problems so politics and global politics has to be the way forward the problem with wars of course is also it, it it sets it sets groups of people and groups of countries either pro or anti yeah, another group of people, and at that point you can never have you can never say yes we're fighting you at the moment but let's sit down and talk about climate change that is never going to happen. So all it does is is it sets up groups of countries in opposition to each other, um, militarily and politically and economically, and that that can't be good for if for for trying to under you know get some agreement on uh, long term climate change. For, for the life of me, I never understand why people think that the effect of climate change is going to be restricted on boundaries. It, mm. it, it <laughs> there are no boundaries. That no, no. you know, it's like it, it's, climate change just it doesn't just just suddenly say, "Well, I've reached a border, so I can't go across." No, indeed, no. The, the you know climate change is, is is the atmosphere has no borders exactly uh, winds have no borders the oceans have no borders yeah. climate change is going to affect everybody around the world and probably already is actually uh, it, it will go in different ways so different part different parts of the world will have different vulnerabilities from other parts of the world but 
even you know I'm talking to you from the you know global north. I'm talking to you from from the UK. Um, we're going to have our own problems with climate change, and already have 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 seen those. Our our problems will be different from countries in the global south, but they'll but but no country and no place is going to is going to be um, is going to escape the damages of climate change. Just going off on a tangent, you mentioned the global north. Would you not say global north is much more prepared than the global south in UK? Well, um, I'm not sure we're more prepared. We've got different vulnerabilities. Uh, we're vulnerable to different types of things, probably. But you're also um, more prepared, though, because of the vulnerability. Possibly, yeah. I mean, the UK has spent a lot of money and a lot of time trying to understand climate change adaptation in the UK, mm-hmm. um, and that's uh, one of the, the, you know, one of the advantages of, of, of living in a, in a country like the UK is that we can spend time and money on these things. Of course, the global parts of the global south haven't got that money all that time, the luxury of being able to think more broadly about the, the impacts of climate change. So, yes, there will be different countries are going to be impacted in, di- in very different ways from each other. Hmm. But we're all going to be impacted in one way or another. Most definitely. You said like we will be impacted by one way or another. Uh, I just want to know that, um, you know, the impact is big um, when the war starts. And uh, But I just want to know that is there any solution as well? Like, we have to see the impact. Uh, if there's a solution after that for the whole world? Well, yeah, that's, that's interesting. I mean, there, is, there have been lots of uh, occasions where um, sort of, for instance, transboundary water resources have, 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 have sort of um, begun, to, begun to play an important role mm-hmm. in, in conflict, in creating conflict. So transboundary water resources are where a river rate, you know, rises in one cu- country and then flows into another, and so both the, both countries, you know, need the water from those mm. the, the, from those rivers. Um, but of course, co- having conversations and political conversations about how you deal with transboundary water resources uh, are exactly the sorts of conversations that you'd want to be having to deal with more, you know, more broader political, economic, or cultural. Um, issues. So, in some ways, dealing with climate change allows us then to deal with other things as well, uh, including conflict, of course. Uh, Professor Harrison, you you mentioned uh, the the you know that the solutions that we are looking for, and, and in accordance with what Brother Shahil's question was as well, mm. the thought comes to mind I, when I was going through your your uh, your bio. You have been in 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 very um, you, you, you've worked in, in scenarios where you have been able to advise senior people who make decisions. Mm. We are a station called Voice of Islam where we believe in faith. Mm-hmm. And and Islam is, is a faith and the Holy Prophet, when peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, has made it incumbent on all Muslims to protect the environment and Mother Earth. Mm. Why is it that faith is not used as a tool to promote climate change in 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 areas where faith does have an impact yeah well um, yeah you know I, of course different faiths uh, in different countries and different regions mm-hmm. have a different role to play so um in some places especially perhaps in the global north and and faith in some ways is becoming uh, less important as we become more secular um in which case therefore uh, th- therefore, the role of of, of, um, of different faiths in driving climate change and driving the arguments around climate change and policies around climate change is becoming 
uh, perhaps uh, they're becoming less important. Um, but of course, in other parts of the world where faith is still very strong and perhaps growing, I absolutely agree that that, that faith is, can can play a very powerful role in 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 forcing politicians and decision makers into making the right decisions. So it, I think, but I think it's probably very strongly regional. The differences are very strongly regional. Mm-hmm. As you know, that the Christian faith in, in Britain is perhaps less strong than it was um, a few decades ago. And so therefore, uh, Christianity perhaps doesn't have the, the ear of government that it, that it did in the past. It, but that may not be the case elsewhere. I agree with you that it might not have the ear of the government, but it still has the ear of the people. Yeah. Well, and and, has, and if, if people change habits and their people mm-hmm. see the governments are not taking actions, then people take actions at the voting bank. No, you're right. Except that, um, that, that for instance, if I take my own country and Christianity is becoming less important as, uh, as in our country uh, and faith is perhaps generally uh, becoming less important in, mm. in, in I think that's across the, the world, world, yeah. Yeah, so... So, uh, so therefore, if they're becoming less important, then people are less likely to listen to, um, you know, misses by religious leaders around the environment. But I do agree with you that that you know, that, that uh, the Bible and other um, religious texts do very strongly say that we're, we've got to look after our earth. And I have to say, at the moment, we're doing a very poor job. Well, because all all faiths, irrespective, um, you know, would discourage self destruction. Which yeah. is where we're heading. <laughs> yeah, we are. Yeah, yes. No, that's absolutely right. And and also, you know, this 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 idea of um, we are sort of stewards of the earth as well. Our exactly. Job is not to take, you know, but our job is to look after look after the earth for for future generations. At the moment, we're doing, a, as I say, we're doing a very bad job. But you're right that that you know, faith, is, you know, Catholic faith, for instance, in parts of Africa, and Muslim faith in parts of Africa and other places, have very powerful roles. I think in mm. driving. Um, driving these these discussions and pushing for for uh, you know ag- ag- changes in agendas professor i have a question like um it's about uh, the climate change and i don't know it's going to be maybe it's going to be a difficult questions or maybe you have the answer for that as well um mm. because people now start asking when when are we reaching the tipping point have we reached it already or are we reaching it very closely when is it when is the time coming when we reach the tipping point of the is is there a tipping well, point well that yeah that's uh there are tipping points there are lots of tipping points probably tipping point is a play, is a time when um a climate system which it might be the um, some rainforest or it might be ocean circulation or it might be some uh, large parts of an ice sheet undergo change radical change very quickly uh into and then f- into a new state right so in other words um the, the 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 climate doesn't doesn't change gradually like we used to think it changes very quickly it jumps from one state to another and sometimes when it jumps from one state to another uh you can't go back again or the climate system can't go back or not for you know hundreds or even thousands of years so the question is when are these going to occur because they would be very damaging and disruptive mm. um to human and other and, and ecological systems and they might also trigger other types of tipping points further down the line um, so there are places, perhaps parts of the West Antarctic ice sheet, which are undergoing very rapid change now. Perhaps there are suggestions that um, um, ocean circulations are beginning to change quite rapidly. Uh, so the question of, of whether we pass one now is, is we can't, we'll never really know until we look back on it from the future. 
So there are, have been suggestions that the West Antarctic ice sheet is now becoming so destabilized that it, we can't really stop its, its um, breakup and it will then lead to a very considerable sea level rise. That may already be underway. Uh, and there are other parts of the climate system where change is, is likely to be very rapid. And, and we don't yet know um, wh- whether we've reached that so-called tipping point. But, but these are real things mm. and these are potentially very damaging. No, it's, it is, and it's very like frustrating what you just said. Um, but you know, we see the conflict as well in this, in this world. We have seen right now. We've seen a lot of conflict in this world. Are they mm. playing a big uh, role in, into that as well to reach a tipping point? So, well, the the the, the role of conflicts and driving tipping points. Yes, and um, I, I think that's probably. Um, if you think about tipping points in social systems, that, for instance, people might will migrate and move from places of conflict, and therefore then that, that triggers a much broader set of arguments around migration. For instance, those, tipping, those cultural and economic and political tipping points may, may well also be very, very important. And conflict will certainly drive those. One, conflict is one of the, probably one of the main drivers of large-scale migration. And large-scale migration drives a whole range of other issues around, you know, uh, changes in politics. Hmm. So, so you know, the, the, the earth is, we shouldn't think of the environment as being something, you know, separate from our lives. The environment is embedded in our lives as well. And conflicts and climate change are, are bound to be sort of, um, uh, you know, deeply integrated with, within each other. Professor Harrison, last, last question, I promise. Hmm. Um, <laughs> You have been working in the trade, you're in, in, in this field, you're an expert, you're a professor in the field. Mm. Is change happening in real terms? Well, or is that um, an unfair it, question? <laughs> no, it's not an unfair question. Will change happen? Well, and the, the amazing thing about climate change is that, is that for the first time in history, we've, we know we've got, we're facing a massive change, a massive problem, but we know what the problem is. And we know exactly how to deal with it. Hmm. And so it, it's, a, it's a crazy world in which we live in, where we both know the problem and how to deal with it, and yet we don't seem to be doing as much as we need to, we need to be doing in terms of dealing with the problem. But we, you know, humans, if you think about what humans have achieved in the past uh, in history, we are, you know, extra- when we put our minds to it, we are extraordinarily inventive. And economics and engineering and, and science are, the, are the, the ways in which we're going to get ourselves out of this problem. They may also be some of the ways in which we got ourselves into the problem. But, I, but we have the technological ability to, and the economic sorry, and the political uh, sort of structures in place to make real change. We don't yet have the economics, probably, but I think that's coming, that's coming along the line, too. The, the so, reason I ask the question is... I, I was listening to Question Time a couple of weeks ago, and, and, and one of the politicians said, well, Britain has achieved near zero or something like that, that we are on target to achieve zero. Um, and then one person said, well, it doesn't make a difference in the scheme of things because globally, you know, on other part of the world, people are not doing anything. So just because we are trying, uh, holistically, it doesn't make an impact. And and I thought, well, let's say we are making uh, our target of zero, mm. yet we are creating wars on the other side of the world where there is a, a because of weaponry, because of bombs and whatnot, where climate is, is uh, climate change is, is going worse. And then because of destruction and war, people move 
going back to the point you were making earlier, that yeah. migration happens because of climate change, because of catastrophe, and then they end up in a country where, like like here, uh, where we are achieving zero, but then it has an impact on other aspects of society because of migration. So are we not yeah. just going around in a circle? Well, we are a little bit, aren't we? Um, but hopefully we're going around in, in increasingly virtuous ones. Yeah. So, um, yes, uh, but both of those people on Question Time were right. Yes, we, uh, the UK is doing extremely well in terms of reducing its carbon emissions, but it's not fast enough, and it's not... And, it's not, and some of the, the recent um, uh, decisions by politicians hasn't hasn't helped hmm. um but 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 the other person's equally right to say that actually globally um whilst ours are our, our emissions our reductions are very welcome they are a, a mere drop in the ocean in terms of what the globe the rest of the globe is doing um our advantage though in britain is that that we're still a very influential country politically and culturally and if we can show the rest of the world that actually you can move to an to net zero and do it and also maintain a modern forward-looking democratic system that surely is a really great message to the rest of the world wonderful uh professor harrison thank you so much sir for taking time out and coming on to the breakfast show and enlightening us with your expertise um it's been a pleasure um i wish you a fantastic day ahead sir peace be with you thank you very much thank Thank you you know what he said Makes no, sense now, doesn't it? It makes sense. And you know, the thing is that we were listening to it, right? Mm. We and all the listeners of Voice of Islam Radio were just listening. But I was just hoping that Rishi Sunak should listen to this as well. All his world leaders should listen to this interview as well. Mm. And should, should learn from it. I mean, they know everything about it, but they should realize the problem now. Well, look, Professor Harrison was, uh, 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 he used to advise the government between 2011 and 2018. And I hope they're still listening to his advice. Yeah. I mean, I hope they're still listening to the interview as well because it is amazing what he said. And I was the only thing I was thinking, why is Sushi Sunak not sitting next to me and why is he not listening right now? But again, this is the thing though, isn't it? That he can only advise. He can't make... It's, it's up to the... the it's, it's, there's got to be desire yeah. and the will for the politicians to listen to the experts. The experts can only advise. They can't make the decision for... Uh, uh, um, unfortunately unfortunately for the politicians but this goes back to the point that we were making earlier and and that you should say to your friend say look it's so important you must vote uh, exactly and he also said like um, you know um, and if he's a Muslim if if your friend is a Muslim and he's not voting tell him Islam doesn't allow that right I think now we should go to one other point as well about re-gifting day Yes, re-gifting. Um, let's bring uh, the, the 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 joy of. Let's bring the climate change topic to to an end because I just wanted to mention His Holiness, the Fifth Caliph of the Promised Messiah, Hazrat Mirza Masood Ahmad. May Allah strengthen his hand. In 2017, he's been doing peace symposiums for over a decade, but 2017 was the one which was dedicated to climate change, and he said it is a and he and at that time the wars were uh, there. There were still wars happening and and. And His Holiness, um, you know, I'm paraphrasing that he he highlighted the fact that on one side we talk about um, we we need to change our habits and we need to look after the environment, and then yet on the other on the flip side, we create weaponry and we sell weaponry to other parts of the world where bombs um, are are destroying the climate, destroying the environment that people are living in. Um, you know, there's got to be a holistic approach. And he said it is the responsibility of today's leaders 
that we make sure we leave a better world behind for the future generations. Amen. It, it's it's you know it it is imperative, um, because what's the point of you know as parents people strive to give their children a better life, a better quality of life, a better standard of life. Well, what what's the point of a better quality and a standard of life if you cannot give them a better environment, a better climate? that they need to live and grow and 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 uh, and, and bring their families um uh, you know up in in uh, in a better environment than 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 they were brought up in so with that we're going to take a very quick break we're going to uh, go and listen to some brief messages and when we come back we're going to go on to the second topic of the morning which is national regifting day so stay tuned um, you know, grab yourself another cup of coffee. Coffee is good for you in the morning. Take my word for it, because I'm going to go and get one. Join me after a very short break. Allah, Allah. You're listening to The Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Writings of the Promised Messiah, alayhi salam. Our God is our paradise. Our highest delight is in our God, for we have seen him and have found every beauty in him. This wealth is worth procuring, though one might have to lay down one's life to procure it. This ruby is worth purchasing, though one may have to lose oneself to acquire it. O ye who are bereft, run to this fountain, and it will satisfy you. It is a fountain of life that will save you. What shall I do? How shall I impress the hearts with this good news? And by beating what drum shall I make the announcement that this is our God, so that people might hear? What remedy shall I apply to the ears of the people so that they should listen? Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Al Malik, the Sovereign, the One with complete dominion, the One whose dominion is clear from imperfection. Say, O Allah, Lord of Sovereignty, Thou givest sovereignty to whomsoever Thou pleasest, and Thou takest away sovereignty from whomsoever Thou pleasest. 
Welcome back to Thursday Morning Breakfast Show with myself, Kayum, and brother Shahil. On to the next topic of the morning, which was briefly mentioned by brother Shahil, which is National Regifting Day. So what's this all about? What's, what do you mean regifting? So as the name says that you buy a gift, yeah. yes, you give it to a person, mm-hmm. and then you give it again, another present to that same person. Now basically, um, over the last few weeks, uh, there has been, oh, sorry, um, yeah, so basically over the last few years, not mm-hmm. weeks, where the third Thursday or in December is known as the regifting day. Uh, like, sometimes, like we sometimes, you know, you and me, we receive gift and we don't know what to do with it, right? So either you keep the gift you or you give it to someone else or mm-hmm. you re-gift the gift again. So you just make sure that the gift is not wasted. This is the most important thing. So the, the motive is to hand over a thing that is not useful to one another. So the value, basically, it's basically to reinsurance the value of giving someone. You know, to show that uh, the reason why I'm giving a gift to someone, to to show that he has, uh, like, that he liked that person, that he loved that person, just to make him feel better. This is basically the main purpose of regifting day as well. So you make sure that when you buy a gift, that gift is not wasted as well. That gift is used as well. So that you are happy and the person who has given that gift to you is happy as well. I have a slight problem with this. All right. No, okay. The word problem is wrong. Yeah. I agree with the notion of regifting. I think it's good. I think giving gifts is fantastic. I mm. think... Um, I don't think it's done enough. Um, if I was to look at my parents' generation and even my generation, I mean, I'm I'm a dinosaur compared to you. Yeah, you know, no you you yeah. <laughs> listen. This this dinosaur is better than the, this generation. I'll tell you that now. <laughs> that the practices that were in place in my generation or the generation above of giving gifts for a specific purpose. That is, you know. It's disappearing. You know, but I'm I'm actually against the specific purpose because people think, okay, it's Christmas Day, you know, you give. That's my point, though. And this is wrong. I think Islam saying, Islam is saying the different. Yeah, Islam saying that you should try to give if you have if you're able. When you go to someone's house, take a gift with you. Exactly. Just that's a norm. I mean, the Holy Prophet peace be upon him. You know, he he was the most generous person in his life. He had very less thing to live. People would give him things, and he was saying, "Okay, you know what? This I mean can be used by someone else who might be needed more than me." Hmm. So he gave it away to someone else. But you could see that the person who gave him the gift was happy because he accepted it, and then the other person who uh, got a gift by the Holy Prophet was also happy. So he made people happy with that, and that's the purpose of that. If you go to someone's house, you make him happy because he invited you. Um, if you see someone, you just surprise him with a gift. Why? Because you like him. You know, the Holy Prophet said, if you like someone, tell them that you like Peace him. Peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Yeah. Peace and, sorry. Yes, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. If you like someone, then just tell him. Yeah, just give him a gift as well. But the thing also is, this generation, and again, I, when I say this generation, I don't mean it in a negative way. I know things are busy, life is busy, social media kind of takes over the, this generation's life. But because of social media, because of this supposed notion that everyone is so busy, people don't go to anybody's houses anymore. You don't go and knock on a friend's door and say, oh, how are you doing? Mm. What you do? You make a phone call. Oh, are you in? Oh, is it okay? You, you and and is there is it like oh you you're only gonna come over if it's for dinner? You're not gonna just go over 
Because you're going to see a friend. You, you are actually very old. We don't phone. We just use WhatsApp. But it, it, look, even worse. <laughs> in my days, you know what we used to do? We used to get in the car and just turn up at the front door. And, and, and if they're in, they're in. If they're not, they were they were very welcoming. And there was always... I remember in my in the olden days, again, I go back to my folks, my, my parents, going to someone's house, either there's a basket of fruit or there's some sweets or there's something that... Even if if even if um, somebody is you know someone whose house you go to regularly, but you don't go empty-handed, you take something with you because, firstly, it, as you said, it's it's a practice of uh, the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, um, and and so it's a Sunnah that you're following that the Holy Prophet never used to go to anyone's house, um, and and you know always he was always a person who gave. But this is something we will come back to later on. Let's go and talk to our first guest on this particular topic for the morning. We've got with us Dr. Daniel Farelli, who is a principal lecturer in psychology at the University of Worcester. Daniel's research specializes on the social reasons why we have, why we behave pro-socially, which includes why we engage in gift giving. Um, good morning. Assalamualaikum. Peace be on you. And thank you for taking time out and coming on to the breakfast show, Dr. Farrelly. Am I correcting your name properly? Pretty much, it's Farrelly. My apologies, Dr. Farrelly. No problem at all. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, sir. Um, I hope you're having a good morning, sir. It's not too bad, not too bad. All the better for speaking to you. Thank you. Wonderful, thank you. It's a pleasure having you here, sir. Um, What are the psychological reasons behind giving gifts in social contexts, and how do they build and maintain relationships. And just to add a little bit onto that, I was just talking to my younger colleague here. <laughs> it's it's a habit that used to be in place where me or, or the older generation, I'm in my 50s. I can remember my parents always taking, always gifting. Sure, yeah. Yet the younger generation or in today's time, that habit and practice seems to ha- be disappearing. So how do, how do we add all that up? Well, the best thing to think about when we're thinking about gift giving is, is think about what gifts are actually for. Mm. Um, and for me to understand that, it's it's all about these humans are incredibly social. We uh, base all of our success, our survival, on the fact that we can live really well together. We get on well in groups. We get on well with each other. And part of that is is giving gifts. It's a key part of that. It's It makes sure that you keep those those relationships strong, you maintain them, sometimes you repair them. Um, and it's no surprise that all cultures throughout history have had some festivals at different times of the year which are based on the giving and sharing of gifts. Yes. So this is what we do, and it's it, one of the things that, I mean, I think you're very much right, that, that the habits have changed around that. Um, but we're moving more towards sort of digital gift giving, which I think is a really interesting area because so many of the things we're doing now aren't, aren't things you can touch, you know? It's, it's not physical things, it's things online. So I think maybe we've seen the gift giving and, and, the, and the ritual and the ceremony and the, and the practice around it moving more digital. Am, am I showing my age when I say that? <laughs> when you say a digital gift, I think a gift should be tangible, no? Well, that's, that's another interesting part about it. I think, I think with, with the generations, it might change slightly, but we, we see a lot of digital gifts now. So you might give someone, you know, like a you know, subscription to Netflix or um, something on, you know, Xbox. 
but it always arrives in a little package with a little bow on it, or it's something that someone can open on, you know, on their birthday or on Christmas Day. So we're not quite gone completely away from it. We still need that physical thing because it's such an important act. So you know, it's a, it's a way of saying I appreciate you. I, I, I agree you with you. Life. I agree with you. But again, maybe again, I'll I'll go back to maybe my age. Isn't the point <laughs> of the gift to make the effort to get up and go buy something? And make the effort of you uh, uh, wrapping it and then giving yeah. the gift in, from your hand to another. Yeah. All of that is now deemed as an inconvenience, so a third party is doing it. Yeah, isn't I that taking I, I, away the essence of the gift? Yeah, I think that, I think that happens a lot. I think one of the things you find in in research around it is that. It's not always like the size of the gift or how much it costs that's important. It's the it's the thought that's gone into it. Exactly. And I think yeah, I think there's so many pressures on us, you know, with with shops, with businesses trying to force things on us. We kind of lose sight of that. And I think you know, you know, at certain times of year, you know, when we're going into shops, spending lots of money we don't have. You know, my wife and I went off yesterday, spent lots of money, and did we really enjoy it? Maybe a little bit, but you know, if you actually take the time to think, okay, well, what does this person want? Or you know, think about that person. Think, well, you know, how mm. do you value them? Instead of just going, oh, I'll grab that, you know, and I'll grab this off the shelf, you know, that's closest to me, it's on often buying it. If we can get back to that, I think that would be really good. But, uh, Doctor, you said, like, thought is also very important, the thought behind giving the gift. Um, you know, I think education is needed here as well, in the younger generation, because I'm talking about myself. What I used to do is that I would, people tell, just give me the money and I will buy the gift for myself then. <laughs> which is very, very wrong. I know that. Which is very, very wrong. But I think here you see that people... The, the education, like, you know, the people just don't know the purpose, why the person is basically giving him the gift. I think education is very uh, important as well then. Yeah. I think I think another thing about that is, mm-hmm. particularly younger people, you know, and, you know, I know lots of family members who, who are saying, I think maybe they don't really value what the purpose of the gift is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it, it's become a, a habit, something, formality yeah. they have to just do. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, maybe as we get older and you sort of, maybe lose touch with certain people or don't see them as much as you like to. You you value that opportunity, you know, value the opportunity to, you know, have a little thought about them, share that gift. Whereas, you know, kids, you know, the parents are there saying, they're just give me the money, I'm going to go, you know, buy all the things I want. Which is, you know, it's it's kind of the same thing. We're still supporting our family members as well. But I think there's another type of gift giving that, you know, we, we appreciate as we get older and that, you know, it's it's those relationships that maybe we do take a little bit for granted when we're younger, which is probably good because, you know, it's, it's a great time to, to get all that support. But as we get older, we need it less. But we still remember it. We still value it. We still, you know, we still love these people. You know, we mm. want to give them gifts and you know, we really love it when they give us gifts too. Um Doctor, is there a connection between gifting and understanding societal or individual psychological patterns? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's it's a, it's an interesting thing that's happening in gift giving, from what I can see, is around um, people realizing the importance of of sustainability in, in the environment. And I think you know, lots of gifts nowadays uh, have that in mind. You know, you know, I think gone are the days where you know we just go and buy as much plastic rubbish and tap that we can, and you know, pass it off as being you know really wonderful gifts. Um, I think people are realizing that and that people appreciate those gifts more. I think, hmm. um, you know, you know, you want things that have some value, some help around it. You know, I think a lot of people are really coming around to that. And that's, and that's where really gift giving really works, because it shows that you care about that person, but also that you care generally you care for the world and, and the society around us. And, and how does I mean, as a, from a psychological perspective, how is it that the human mind reacts uh, regarding giving gifts in daily life and on occasions like 
you mentioned Christmas, you're going out with your partner, your wife going out and buying presents. Mm. And, and, you know, it's it's an event. Um, yeah. Is it that our minds become so used to doing this exercise on said events compared mm. to maybe us um, making a, a an effort to do this more on a monthly basis as an exercise mm. instead of, as you said earlier, not looking at the value of the gift monetarily, but looking at mm. the value of the gift from meaning. Yeah, I think yeah, certain times of years when gifts are expected, you probably, the, that element of surprise goes away. And I think, you know, gifts at other times are, are really valued, apart from that, you know, the surprise value. But you get a sense that there's more more thought to it because, you know, at Christmas time, you think, right, we need to get presents for all these people. And they kind of expect them. But, you know, if you, uh, you know, if you, um, if you just contact them, and then we quite recently, this is a little long-winded story. We, um, my wife and I got married 10 years ago, and we've had the same kettle from a couple. We don't see that often. <laughs> and, the ke- and the kettle, amazingly, is still going with so many other things have gone. So I just thought I sent them a message over the summer. I went, just to let you know, your kettle's brilliant, and it's still going lately. And he sent a lovely message back, and people hadn't seen for a long time. And we had a nice little, you know, a chat via text messages. Um, so that, you know, that, that's the same sort of principle. It's just a way of saying... I've been thinking about you and I really value you. And they, you know, they they didn't expect that. They probably didn't expect the kettle to last that long. <laughs> so I think it's just, I think it's the same thing. I think you still get that sort of warm, fuzzy glow around it, and you know that that's a really important thing around it. But what what about my... what about like my young younger <laughs> colleague here talked about um, asking for a gift? Is that a mm. gift? Ah, uh, well, yeah. <laughs> well, that's, yeah, that's, yeah, that, it's, yeah, it, it depends who's, who's asking and who's, um, who's it for. I think if it's family members, I think that's, that is probably a bit more expected, particularly, you know, sort of younger kids. Um, it's it, sometimes we don't really know what they're doing or what they're interested in. It's, you know, it all becomes very alien very quickly as you get older. It does. So I think, I think that's okay. And I think, I think, Giving presents and gifts to, to family and fr- uh, to family is a bit different from giving it to friends. I think family is more about that sort of support, you know, making sure you have that that connection. You know, our family is so important. Friends, it's more of a you know just building that relationship, keeping that relationship going, which is you know it's not necessarily tied by relatedness. Um, so I think yeah, I think if you know a friend you haven't seen for a while said right, can you buy you can send me a gift list? That'd be a bit weird. It'd be a bit strange. But you know, sort of teenage son, you know. That may, probably is a bit more acceptable, I think. And, and is it? I mean, finally, is is it the, the understanding from a from a from a human mind point of view? Is age a, uh, a an important factor in how this is looked at? Um, the, the notion of gifting or regifting is it understood in a very different manner, like? Um, like I'm giving my perspective from a, from from a, someone in his fifties compared to Shahil, who's in his uh, what le- early thirties, late twenties. I'll give I'll give uh, I'll give my opinion. Someone in his mid to late forties. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I think it does change. But I think we get quite seasoned, quite old about. It. I mean, when I talk about this in lectures, I talk about you know the, how ridiculous gifting is, because what the point I make is I've got. Five pairs of cufflinks. Now, at the moment, I'm just wearing a t-shirt. Mm-hmm. I don't. <laughs> I, I never wear enough shirts that need cufflinks in that sort of rotation. So it gets you kind of thinking, uh, particularly as you get older as well, when you've got everything you need, 
you know, we, you tend to do better in life and you know, quite often you think, well, if I need something, I can go and buy it quite often. It kind of changes what you think about gifting. It's not necessarily something you really need for your survival and ongoing. It's more about, okay, well, what, what's this for? You know, what, what am I benefiting from that? And it, it's about those relationships with people. And I think you start to recognize that a bit more and you realize the point of doing these things. And, um, you know, I think about the example of my, my daughter, like writing Christmas cards to everyone in her class that she sees every day, all day. But then we spent some time the other night writing all the Christmas cards, thinking, okay, well, here's something we haven't seen for a while. I think, okay, and just sort of as you write them, you think about them, and you think that's the really important part of it. Um, so it does change. It does change. Wonderful. Dr. Verley, thank you so much uh, for taking time out and coming on to The Breakfast Show. I wish you a You're fantastic day ahead. May peace be with you, sir. And you. Thank you very much. Thank Cheers. you. Bye-bye. 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 Let's go and listen. Let's go straight and, sure. and uh, listen to uh, uh, an interview we had with Dr. Gillian uh, Givy, who is an assistant professor of marketing at West Virginia University, John Chambers College of Business and Economics. And let's see uh, what was said about the idea of re-gifting. In the name of the Lord, the most gracious and merciful, dear listener, we have Dr. Julian Givy with us who is an assistant professor of marketing at West Virginia University's John Chambers College of Business and Economics. Dr. Julian, um, good evening and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Hey there, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Um, I appreciate that you have taken out your time. Um, uh, Dr. Julian, um, can you discuss the key findings of your research? How do consumers typically nav- navigate the decision-making process when selecting gifts for others? Sure, certainly. So there's a lot of really, really interesting things that that come out from, you know, my studies as well as other people's studies on gift giving. And I think as it relates to just navigating the gift giving process, I think uh, whenever people are giving gifts, they they tend to concentrate on four main things. So the first one is probably the most obvious, and that is sort of just figuring out and, and striving to buy something that the recipient wants, right? When we think about gift giving, it's all about what we you know generally we generally see it as all about pleasing the recipient, right? So that's kind of the most obvious thing. So whenever we're buying gifts, we certainly try to strive to make the recipient very happy with the thing that we select. Then, kind of the somewhat surprising point is the the second thing we focus on is is not just making the recipient happy, but also making ourselves happy. So mm-hmm. sometimes we want to you know we want to leave the gift giving process feeling satisfied with the thing that we gave even if that may, may or may not be the, um, the, the item or the, the product or the gift that the recipient wants to receive the, the, the most. So we kind of refer to these as sort of more selfish motivations in gift giving. So just one example of this would be I have a paper that shows that uh, as gift givers, we really um, don't like giving things that are identical to products we own ourselves because mm-hmm. that will make our version of the product feel less unique. So um, for example, right, you could imagine that if I'm, uh, you know, I know you guys are based in the UK, right? You can imagine if I'm buying, mm-hmm. let's say, if I if I have a very special like Wayne Rooney uh, football jersey, I wouldn't want to give my friend a Wayne Rooney jersey because that would make my version feel less unique. So even if I know he or she wants that jersey very much, I may give them something, give them something else instead. Um, so that would be kind of an example of this sort of selfish yeah. motivation in gift giving. And then the third thing that we concentrate on when we're buying gifts is the different norms in gift giving. So you think about gift giving, right? There's, there's zillions of different norms, right? There, there's so, so these are kind of informal rules, if you will, about how we should act. So there's norms related to who we should give gifts to. There's norms for different types of occasions. There's norms about how much money we should spend. 
right? There's norms for how to wrap the gift. So there's all sorts of different, uh, you know, norms involved with gift giving. And so certainly we base our choices in large part on gift giving norms. And then the final part, the final thing that we tend to concentrate on is sort of the giver recipient relationship. So whenever we're giving gifts, we like to sort of give gifts that will um, in part aid the relationship in some manner. Right. So for example, I may might give, you know, my significant other tickets to a show because that will then allow us, the two of us to go out, you know, and to have a nice evening together and grow the relationship. So I'd say those are sort of the four main things that people concentrate on when gift giving. And uh, I mean, uh, it's very interesting about the four points you just mentioned. Um, uh, to be honest, if I would buy a gift, I would lay, mainly look on the second point, which is like, which makes me happy and the other person, <laughs> well, like the selfish one. But um, yeah, uh, uh, do you think there are maybe some more factors as well where people are then influenced and spending mo uh, more money on gifts? Yeah, so the different factors. Yeah, certainly there's there's a number of factors that influence how much we spend mm. on gifts, right? So um, you can think about uh, the, the the nature of the occasion, right? For some occasions, we just are, tend to spend more than others. Um, our relationship with the person. So if it's a very close, you know, close relationship, we'll spend more than if it's a more distant relationship. Certainly our, um, our, 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 our own financial status impacts how much we're spending on gifts, right? Um, but even kind of, kind, of the, the, kind of a wild finding is that um, even people who are not the most uh, you know, financially well-off, it's not uncommon for them to they, – they feel like they need to spend a lot of money on gifts. So they, they'll even go into debt you know, just to spend, you know, oh. to spend money on, on, on gifts. And so uh, certainly those are some things. But also some more interesting you – know, some other things kind of from, from research that we find – For example, um, the, how, how wealthy the recipient is. So we tend to spend more money when buying from more wealthy recipients as opposed to less wealthy recipients, in part because we think they have higher standards you know, for, for what, they, mm -hmm. what they expect out of a gift. And also we tend to spend more um, whenever, we, whenever we think there's going to be lots of other people at the gift-giving occasion giving really good gifts. So, for example, if you go to a birthday party and you have a, you have a kind of a feeling or you know yeah. that other people are going to be giving you know, expensive gifts – you don't like to kind of be underneath them in terms of how much you uh, spend. So whenever we, when we think that other people are going to be giving expensive gifts, we'll, we tend to spend a bit more as well. So lots of different factors influence our gift spending. The, well, why, the major thing why I just understand is that if someone gives you a gift which is very expensive, it is kind of that the person is then forced to, give, to spend out money more to give him a better present, which is even more expensive. <laughs> than yeah, like, certainly. So certainly. Yeah, so certainly reciprocity, right? This feel we have this feeling, right, that we need to kind of match what they give. And so, mm -hmm. actually, funny enough, the the research suggests that we, as recipients, were kind of less appreciative of these very, very expensive gifts than givers anticipate. In part because we think to ourselves, well, if they give me, you know, a $500 gift or something, I'm going to have to re recipro reciprocate, right, <laughs> with something that's at least close to that. So, um, certainly, givers tend to tend to go a little bit more expensive than recipients want in part because of that reason. And like, and then, you know, I just want to know, is there like a perfect gift? Like a gift which say it's not expensive, but it's so looking perfect, so looking good, then people say, oh, you know what, that's the perfect gift. Um, without asking how much it was, <laughs> you just accept it and uh, just, it, it, I won't put him into uh, the uh, problems to buy him like, more expensive. But like, is there any perfect gift where it's, perfect for both the, the one who's receiving it and the one who's giving it? So certainly I have, I have two kind of points here I'd like to make. So the first yeah. is that um, 
I think going with sentimental gifts are, are really close. I mean, they may not be perfect, but they're going to be, they're going to be excellent gifts. So um, if you think about a gift giving around the holidays, the majority of the gifts are kind of tend to be more superficial, right? So maybe, um, I don't know, a gift card or um, a chocolate, you know, chocolates or uh, like a jersey of a sports player, right? Or clothes, right? These more superficial things. But really, recipients are quite, quite receptive of sentimental items. So you think about something like a, like a scrapbook with photographs of, of you and the, and the recipient, or maybe it's a letter that you, you know, handwritten about how much you appreciate them and maybe talking about past memories or things like that. And really, these sentimental gifts, you know, they don't cost all that much usually, but they can be really, really great gifts, right? And in some cases, you know, you even br- can even bring people to tears when you give them. So I think sentimental gifts are certainly very, very good mm-hmm. gifts. And then the second point also related and kind of critically, you know, sentimental gifts, like you said, you know, they're not, they're not costing all that much. And then the second thing is um, I'm, I'm definitely a big kind of advocate of kind of giving gifts when they're not expected. So for example, um, most of the gift giving takes place throughout the year for these holidays, you know, these major gift giving occasions, right? So for example, birthdays or, or Christmas or, or Hanukkah or what, you know, whatever the, you know, the, the specific, um, you know, occasion, Mother's Day, Father's Day, you know, all these different things. But really what we, what we found in our research is that it's actually a lot easier to make um, recipients happy whenever you're giving them kind of gifts randomly out of the blue. So if you just give someone a gift in the middle of, you know, March on a random Tuesday, uh, that can be quite effective at making them quite happy because they're, you know, they're surprised Mm -hmm. and it's showing that you care for them. And, and there, you, the kind of critical thing, again, relating back to the cost, is that you don't have to spend all that much um, in these cases to make them quite happy. So you can spend essentially, you know, $10 on a random Tuesday in March, and that's like the equivalent of spending $50 on a, you know, for, on a mm-hmm. birthday. So that's another really – and people, you know, that's another kind of, I think, uh, may not be the perfect gift, but it's really an effective way of gift giving because you're, you're making them quite happy and you're not spending all that much as a gift giver. And there we had Brother Shahil um, interviewing our uh, professor from, from West Virginia. How was that interview, Brother Shahil? Interesting. And you know, uh, when he was talking, he reminded me on the thing of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. You know, he, Prophet, because it's all about building relationship with other people. Mm-hmm. And the Prophet, peace be upon him, he has said that none of you can be a truly faithful Muslim. Unless he likes for his brother what he likes for himself. And that's the key. That's what I was started with, where you said re-gifting. And I said, what if you, somebody gives you a gift mm. and you don't like it? Mm. And then you're going to go give it to someone else. Exactly. And that shouldn't be the case. It shouldn't be the case. I mean, this is solving everything. Like, I'm giving a gift because I, I'm giving him the same gift which I like. Yep. And he who's receiving the gift, he will receive it because he doesn't want him to feel bad because... He doesn't want to feel the same way as well. So mm. it is actually a conclusion for everything. And I think this is a perfect gift. You know, you Without a doubt. Without a doubt. I, I always say to people, look, I, I, I have a habit. I buy honey mm-hmm. from Humanity First. Mm-hmm. Humanity First sell pure, honey. beautiful, pure yeah. honey. You keep, a, you keep 10, 15 jars at home every time you go to someone's house. You give them, firstly, you're giving a gift. Secondly, this is money that's going to a good cause, Humanity First. Thirdly, you're encouraging natural way of, 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 of living. The Holy Quran talks about what? Honey having the cure for? Everything. So, so many boxes are being ticked. Yeah, and and I don't know anybody who doesn't like honey. 
No, honey is tasty. Honey is good as well for the body and honey. And you know, humanity first. Honey is beautiful. Yeah, I mean, this is this this is you know. Islam is all about giving, gifting. Islam is all about give, building relationship. If you look at the time of Tali Prophet, how he has done it, you see this is actually this is Islam. Yes, because he never, he, you know, he never like uh, everything was given to him. He never t- kept it for himself. He ever regifting. He always gives. Yes, always gives. Always. But this goes back to all the caliphs and even the current <coughs> caliph, Hazrat uh, Mirza the, the yes. fifth caliph of the Promised Messiah. May Allah strengthen his hand, who always talks about we are the community of giving. Exactly. We are always the community of just, just giving. Just to wrap it up, it's it. sad that the upper hand is better than the lower hand. Yes, without a doubt. Um, with that thought, uh, just want to thank all of our guests for taking time out and coming on uh, to The Breakfast Show. Thank you to Brother Sahil, Shahil for joining me today. Thank you to our producer, Arifa Khan. Uh, thank you to Mariam um, Muritada, Dr. Fatma Rizwan, Hania Sajid, thank you to Mala Mahmood, Sabah Ijaz, Kashfa Noor, Barira Harun, Tayyiba Tahir, and Waki Khan. Um, my apologies to Mariam if I have mispronounced your name. Uh, please forgive any shortcomings on our part. Please remember us in your prayers. Until next time, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all.